our purpose is to serve God and to bring others to Him. But Satan loves to distract us from fulfilling God's command. And so that's why I challenge you this Christmas for you and your families to reflect on the act of love that Christ showed by coming to earth as a baby to live a sinless life, to die and to rise again so that we can be reconciled to God and ultimately to His second coming. Welcome to the Mama Bear Apologetics Podcast. A podcast where we teach you to roar like a mother. And by roar, we mean recognize the message, offer discernment, argue for a healthier approach, and reinforce these ideas with your kids. Unless you want to growl around your house. I mean, that's cool too. <laughs> You're like, check it. We keep it reels. <laughs> <laughs> that's so bad. You're awesome. Mama Bear Apologetics is a listener-supported program, so if you like what we do, head on over to the Mama Bear Apologetics website and click support. It's time to rise up, ladies. Rise up, Mama Bears. This might not affect your faith, but it might affect your children's. Hey everyone, welcome to another Mama Bear Apologetics podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you raise up the next generation to be warriors in the faith. We are at our last week of our Advent series, and the theme for this week is love. And oftentimes around Christmas, when we're thinking about love, it often equates to acts of service, like serving food to the homeless, or perhaps donating to the Red Cross or toy drives, and these are all wonderful things. But what I want us to focus on as we go through this final Christmas carol is instead reflecting on the implications of the ultimate act of love that Christ did in coming down in human form and ultimately dying for our sins. And the reason I want to take this approach is because our culture today is doing its very best to distort the gospel in any way, shape, or form. And one of the ways it does that is attacks who we are and tries to invalidate what Christ did for us. So I want to encourage us, in, again, to reflect on what God has done, because I believe that this will help motivate us much longer than the Christmas season to not only dive in and get to know God better, but to help nurture our children well so that they are better able to defend the faith. So first, our carol that we are doing is Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And if you are in service with me, man, this is one I am belting out almost as loud as Joy to the World. So I apologize to everyone who's in the pew in front of me. But I love this carol. There is so much joy and hope, but it's also theologically rich. And the reason why that is, is because it was written by Charles Wesley in 1739. Now, if Wesley is starting to ring a bell, that's because Charles Wesley was the brother of John Wesley, the famous Methodist preacher. Now, what's cool is both of them preached, traveled, preached. They also both wrote hymns. But while John Wesley is best known for his sermons, Charles Wesley is best known for writing hymns and poetry. And do you want to take a guess at how many hymns this man wrote? 6,500, that's the lowball estimate, is actually speculated that he has written between 6,500 to 10,000 hymns, and they have been sang, sung for almost 200 years now. I mean, take that Taylor Swift. I mean, the Swifties are having their own little army, but the Wesleys have been rocking it out since 1739, so hands down to them. 
ultimate. It's awesome. Now, what's amazing about Hark the Herald Angels Sing is this actually is a reflection on Luke 2, which if you saw our earlier podcast on O Holy Night, Placide Capot, he also wrote his hymn, O Holy Night, as a reflection on Luke 2. But while Capot wrote it from the perspective of if you were standing in the stable watching Jesus in the manger, what Charles Wesley wrote it from was from the perspective of the angels. And this carol was originally five verses long, but we traditionally only sing the three carols. So we're going to look at that. Now, the first uh, section, the first verse is actually reflecting on the glory of Christ's arrival. Verse two, we're going to see the glory of the incarnation. And then verse three, we're looking at his life, death, and resurrection, and what the second coming means for the believer. I know, totally dense, but it's amazing because, I mean, that's what you get when you have hymns written by a theologian, so hoorah, Wesley. So let's take a look at this first uh, verse. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinner reconciled. Joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies. With angelic hosts proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. And then you have the beautiful refrain, hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Now, fun fact, I don't know if you know this, the original hark the herald angels sing, that wasn't the original writing. Originally, it was hark how all the welkin rings. What do you think? Yeah, I know. The welkin, it sounds like something you would catch in the ocean. And welkin is actually another word for heavens. So it was basically hark how all the heavens ring. Well, George Whitefield, who was uh, a friend of his in 1758, decided to change the verse, probably just to help it make a little more sense to the average person. Because I don't know about you, I had to Google what welkin was. And so that's where we get the new hark the herald angels sing. And so this is praising Christ's work through his death and resurrection on the cross. Now, you'll notice the reference to the newborn king, which, of course, who's a newborn baby. But this actually speaks back to the prophecy in Micah 5.2, which speaks of a ruler coming from Bethlehem. It says, but, but you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be a ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. And then this is spoken again in Matthew 2, 1 through 12. This was when the wise men were actually speaking to King Herod. They asked him, they said, hey, where is the newborn king of the Jews? They want, they recognized his star. They saw his star and they wanted to come and worship him. So it's amazing to not only see this prophecy of Micah, but then we see the wise men who were not believers coming to worship the newborn king. Now, of course, the passage where it talks about God and sinner being reconciled, this is referring to through Christ's work on the cross, substitution has been paid, atonement has been made, and now we are justified and sanctified by God. And so there before God. And so this is wonderful. But what may happen is your kiddos are probably going to ask a question. They're probably going to say, well, wait a second. If God is all powerful, then why did Christ have to die for our sins? Instead, couldn't he just like pardon them? You know, just I pardon you and you're good to go. And the answer to that is no. The reason why God could not just pardon these sins, turn a blind eye, wipe the slate clean is because he is 
holy, completely holy. And holiness requires justice. And justice for sin cannot be made in any sort of earthly way. There was no animal sacrifice that could have atoned for it, no human effort that could have atoned from it from man. Instead, it had to be a perfect sacrifice, and that only could have come through Christ. So that is why Christ had to come down and take on this human form to become a tiny baby and grow up and be fully man and fully God to atone and reconcile us sinners to God. Now, this next passage here, joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies, which is just a beautiful phrasing. This, This rising, it kind of speaks to the weight of sin and condemnation felt both by man and the earth. Remember, man and earth were under the curse of sin. So this rising up is we are now free from this condemnation and we can rise to it. And we can share Christ's coming because this signals the end of our separation between man and God. And what's awesome is when we think of this triumph of the skies, it brings to mind this this sort of foreshadowing, if you will, of Jesus's triumphal entry into Jerusalem before his crucifixion. It's mentioned in all four gospels. And so when we think of nations, all these nations coming together and rising up, we now have this triumph that's coming through and that is through the death, eventual death of Christ. Now, verse two, Christ, my highest heaven adored, Christ, the everlasting Lord, late in time, behold him come offspring of the virgin's womb, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail incarnate deity. Pleased with us in flesh to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. So Emmanuel, God with us. So this is speaking all about the incarnation. And when it refers to Christ being the everlasting Lord, everlasting, eternal, lasting forever, it has no beginning or end. So this speaks toward God's timelessness and that he isn't bound by time like us humans. Instead, he time is his creation. Therefore, he is above it. He is outside of it. And so when this question sometimes is asked, like who created God? Well, all created beings are bound by time. God is not bound by time. God is not created at all. Now, this offspring of the virgin's womb, there are amazing prophecies about the virgin birth of Christ. In fact, in Isaiah 7, 14, it says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. And Luke one twenty seven echoes this, um, and, but the word virgin here, that's often trips people up. It's uh, the Greek word parthenos, which usually is referred to an unmarried woman of marriageable age. So she is fertile. She's able to be married. And so some people have tried to argue, well, Mary wasn't actually a virgin because uh, parthenos can sometimes just mean young woman. Well, that's when you have to look at the context and the history of where this is at. Back then, if you were an unmarried woman of marriageable age, you were a virgin. There is not the, there was a huge amount of stigma around premarital sex. It was condemned by death. It's not like today where most people, if they're of marrying age, they have been sexually active. It's very different back then. So this word, even though it can mean young woman in this context, it does not mean that it means a virgin, just like the prophecy. If it just said, well, behold, here's a sign to you. A young woman will give birth. Well, that's not exactly miraculous, is it? No, it had to be a virgin for it to be miraculous, which can bring another question from your kids. Your kids may ask, well, wait a second, why did Jesus have to be born a virgin? And like we already said, it was to fulfill the prophecy in Isaiah seven fourteen, 
the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. And that is the title that Christ was given, Emmanuel, God with us. So it couldn't be brought about by human effort. That's why it had to be a divine conception because salvation could not come from a human effort. It could only come through God. And regular conception, it isn't all that miraculous. It's just biology. So this also fulfilled God's promise in 315. So when there was the fall of man, God announces that there will be enmity. There will be tension. There will be war between the serpent and Eve's offspring. And this is a reference to Satan and Jesus. This is described originally um, in the fourth verse of Hark the Herald Angels Sing as well. It says, rise the woman's conquering seed, bruise in us the serpent's head. That was used in the original verse four that we don't traditionally sing today, but it actually references this conquering seed. That is Christ bruising the serpent's head. That is Satan. Another reason why Jesus had to be born of a virgin is because of imputed sin. So man and woman, they pass along imputed sin and a fallen nature through the male line. So Jesus had to have a fully human form, which came through Mary, but he was divinely conceived through the Holy Spirit so that he would not have an imputed sin, be under the curse of imputed sin, or have a fallen nature. So this was why he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And in doing so, he was fully man, but also retained fully God. In fact, one of the things that I really liked mentioned in gotquestions.com is he explains that Jesus was not made in the likeness of Adam. It says, in fact, Paul contrasts Jesus with Adam in Romans 5, explaining that Adam brought death, but Jesus brought life. So Jesus couldn't couldn't have been a descendant from Adam. So he had that hypostatic union, that beautiful uniting of human nature and the divine. Last verse, hail the heaven-born prince of peace, hail the son of righteousness, light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings, mild he lays his glory by, born that we may no more die, born to rise us from the earth, born to give us second birth. Now you would have to look at the wording of this of this verse to really catch something. So hail the son of righteousness. This is not son, S-O-N. This is son as in S-U-N. So son of righteousness, light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. So as we saw from other verses, Jesus is often called the day spring, the dawn. And so this son of righteousness, it wasn't a confusion. It wasn't a typo. It wasn't a confusion. Charles Wesley was a very learned man. He definitely knew the difference between male offspring and that flaming gas ball in the sky. No, this son of righteousness is a direct reference to Malachi 4, 1 through 3. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble, and that day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. Check this out in verse 2. But for you who revere my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go out and leap like calves released from the stall. So this painting of son of righteousness was intentional because it's twofold. It's not only showing God's grace, but also his justice as well. So for those who reject Christ, the son will burn like a furnace, as it says in verse one. But for those who are fearful of God, who are submissive to God, it says, but to those of you who revere my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing 
and with righteousness. So it's, it imputes this righteousness and it causes healing, this spiritual healing, which is you know, just amazing, this twofold purpose that we see mirrored in here. And this encapsulates really that joy that is found in the rising of a new day. It references Jesus's second coming, because remember, this restoration, it won't completely occur until Christ's second coming. And this is why most gravestones, fun fact, we learned this in church just this past Sunday, and I thought it was awesome. And I wanted to share it with you. This is also why most gravestones will face east. So east is where the sun rises, and it is said through scripture in Zechariah 14, 4, that when Jesus returns, it will be upon the Mount of Olives. And do you know which direction the Mount of Olives is from the United States and England, which this hymn was written? East. And so that is why gravestones will face east, because it was believed that when Christ returns and the dead rise, they will rise facing the coming Savior. So fun little bit of trivia there. So this last bit here. Mild he lays his glory by, born that we may no more die, born to raise us from the earth, born to give us second birth. So what's amazing is you're actually going to see different aspects of how the spiritual restoration is going to occur. So born that we may no more die. This is a spiritual restoration that we get to live eternally in heaven. So this happens when you accept Christ as your savior. Born to raise us from the earth. This is a physical resurrection, a reference to physical resurrection and born to give us second birth. Again, earthly rebirth that we uh, that we get to have as we accept Christ as our Savior. And this is actually a reference to John 3 when Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus. Remember, he says that, you know, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven unless you are born again. And this would have had, this passage here on the second birth would have really held a significance for Charles Wesley himself because both Charles and John Wesley, they had a evangelical coming to faith experience. So they originally were, were members of the Anglican church, the church of England. And so, but for them, when they had this religious experience, they recognized, wait a second, faith is, we are saved through acts of faith, much like Luther came to that realization. It is acts of faith, not works that gets us salvation. And so this would have really spoke to Charles Wesley. That's my theory anyway, is that this really would have spoke to Charles Wesley because he is affirming that our faith is, our salvation is through faith alone in Christ. And this is spoken of too in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith and this not from yourselves, it is a gift from God, not by works so that no one can boast. So as this song is playing and as you're singing this carol throughout this Christmas season, one thing I want to challenge you to do is to reflect on the implication of Christ coming to this earth and what it means for you, what it communicates about who you are in God's kingdom, because this is an ultimate act of love. Christ foregoing his kingly reign in heaven and coming down incarnate to suffer and die a traitor's death is just absolutely horrific, but he did that because you are immensely precious and he wanted to be reconciled. He wanted us to be reconciled with God. And this was the only way to do it. And yet our world is actively trying to blind us to this fact. And one of the ways they do that is by trying to degrade the thing that he came to save, namely us. And think about it. Think about the major cultural movements that are going on right now. So this heavy emphasis on climate. What are What is the major burden of the climate? Yes, you may say fossil fuels, but one of the things that's also said to be a huge burden on the climate is people. 
God's people created in his image, having children under this ideology of climate, this idolization of climate is considered selfish and even reckless. It's actually contributing to the degradation of the of the planet. And so many activists are actually calling for a curtailment of the population. So it's trying to destroy God's creation for the idolization of the climate. Think of LGBTQ ideology. It reduces who you are to who you're attracted to and who you sleep with and promises you salvation as long as you go along with your desires. We see the same thing in gender ideology. Who you are isn't made in the image of God. It's who you feel yourself to be. And you have to go along with surgeries and hormones and outward expression and living this lie to feel right, to be accepted, to have this salvation. Even feminism, what does feminism say about human beings? Well, very often within feminism, men are considered scum and ladies, ladies, we're said that we're only succeeding if we are basically being boss girls, if we are not living within the home, if we are not serving our families. No, no, that's oppression. That's self-degradation. No, the only way that we have our value, that we have our living to our true potential is if we are in the workforce, having all the top jobs, only then do we succeed. Only then are we doing good. It's ultimately tragic. And CRT, you're an oppressor if you are white. And if you're a minority, well, then you're ultimately held down. You're always held down by the white individual. And so all of these false worldviews, all of these movements within culture are there to cause division, are there to offer a false salvation, a false savior, all of which to blind us to the truth of what Christ did. So this Christmas, as you are reading through John, and you are seeing the account of Jesus's birth, what I encourage you to do is to ask these questions, not only for yourself, but to your children to nurture this reflection. So whose are you? Who do you belong to? What does Christ say about you? Who does he say that you are? How did he show his love for you? What does that act say about your worth? What does his sacrifice mean for your purpose in life? And what are some ways that you can start to live out this purpose? See, the world is so distracting. They say that our purpose is in our jobs or how much money we make or how many followers we have, but that's not our purpose. Our purpose is to serve God and to bring others to him. But Satan loves to distract us from, from fulfilling God's command. What he does instead is says that the ultimate standard that we are to ascribe to is a worldly standard. Uh, you have to be a certain age, a certain weight. You have to look a certain way. You have to bring home a certain amount of money. And he's always shifting that standard. He's always shifting the goal post. So it's completely out of reach. Or, or he's giving you exactly what he's promising so that you are duped into thinking that this earthly standard is the ultimate form of heaven. And it's a lie. And so that's why I challenge you this Christmas for you and your families to reflect on the act of love that Christ showed by coming to earth as a baby to live a sinless life, to die and to rise again so that we can be reconciled to God and ultimately to his second coming. Now, I know this might seem like a heavy topic to discuss this time of year. I mean, I get it, right? Inflation, looting, the political, racial, ideological tensions that are going on all around us and on our TVs. It's so tempting just to want to completely block out the world and to just have sort of this happy place after a while. But the battle doesn't stop just because we want to press pause for a while. And I'm not saying you have to get all depressive, but what I am saying is that what would be good is instead joyfully filled with hope, 
with your eyes focused on the peace that will come with Christ's return. Focus on the love that God showed through Christ this holiday season. And challenge you to let it shape how you raise your kids this next year. What do you want to teach? What do you want them to know? How do you want them to stand firm in the faith? How can you better articulate aspects of the faith to your children? What challenges are they wrestling with and how can you better answer them? As Jason Whitlock says, is that when we are fearful before God, we are fearless in front of culture. So our challenge from Mama Bear to you mamas, papas, grandmas, and grandpapas is to make 2024 your year to be fearless and to raise kids who are fearless before culture. One of the best ways to do that is to help them know their savior and the challenges that they will face as Christians. This has been a Mama Bear Apologetics recording. To learn more about Mama Bear Apologetics, please visit us on the web at www.mamabearapologetics.com. We hope you learned a little more about how to sift through ideas, accept the good, reject the bad, and now you can go teach your kids to do the same. Do you have any questions or maybe some ideas about future podcast episodes? Send us an email to askthemamabears at gmail.com and we'll do our best. Rise up, ladies. Rise up, Mama Bears. We are all in this together.